Well, we're finishing up this week our series that we've entitled Faith in Action. And the whole series has been about what does it look like when our faith gets played out in our everyday life. And again, just you know, aware that I just talked about how if we focus so much on the externals of our life, on doing the right thing, getting everything perfect, we're not only going to be miserable, but we're going to fail at it. We will, we will not be able to be... Forget about being the person God wants you to be. We're not able to be the person we want us to be. Right? Do you relate to that at all? Like there's an image of yourself that you have in your mind of what kind of person you are. And you fall short of your own image. I fall short of my own image on a daily basis. And so there, there is this tendency when people talk about faith and action to then put all the emphasis on the action. And last week and this week, we're in the book of James. And I mentioned it before, but James is one of those books that, that in fact, some Christians throughout history have been tempted to actually take out of the Bible. They, they thought that it was too focused on action, too focused on the externals, not focused enough on the heart, and not focused enough on Jesus. Now, James is actually the brother of Jesus. He's a guy who, during Jesus' lifetime, probably did not believe that Jesus was God, that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, I don't know, some of you are actually in here with your siblings. Imagine if your brother or sister said, oh, by the way, uh, God's my father and I'm going to be your savior and you really need to put your faith and trust in me and I'll take care of everything. How would that go? Right? So, I mean, even during Jesus' lifetime, there's no indication that, that any of his siblings and maybe even Mary until the very end did not believe that he was who he claimed to be. Even though Mary, for example, had had prophecies about who he would be and what he would do in the nation. And what's interesting is that, you know, if you, if you were going to write a book for the Bible, and your brother were Jesus, right, don't you think you might take advantage of a little bit of that credibility, that automatic credibility you might get just from being the brother or sister of Jesus Christ? You know, it's like, hey guys, listen closely. You know who my brother is, right? I've got the inside scoop on how to live the way he taught you. Because I'm his brother. But James doesn't start that way. The very beginning of the book of James, if you have your Bible, you can open up. We're going to jump to a couple of different places today. But, uh, you know, pull a phone out, pull a Bible out. There's one of these nearby under a chair. And we're just going to be right in James chapter 1. It's on 1216 in the Black Pew Bible. Notice how James begins his letter. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Where you or I might be inclined to do some name dropping, like, hey, this guy's my brother. James says, this guy's my master. The only credibility of my witness is that I am a servant of Jesus Christ. And so his identity comes before all of the book of James, which is all about action. In fact, throughout the book of James, I think I read there's something like 90 commands in 100 verses. Probably the highest concentration, concentration of commands, maybe outside of, of Deuteronomy, you know, the book of the law. And yet James begins everything with, 
I am simply a servant of my master, Jesus Christ. It's so important to remember who you are if you want to be able to do the things that God's called you to do, even the things that you want you to do. And so today, I want to look at one of the, this will be our last sermon in the Faith in Action series. And I want to look at this little thing that trips so much of us up. It trips me up. Uh, we won't do a raising of hands, but if we did, we'd probably all raise our hands. It's a little sermon about the tongue, about our words, about the things we say or don't say, which, of course, are really an overflow and an outflow of what's in here. We're going to go a little bit out of order because James actually talks about words and tongue and the things we say throughout his book. But there's one key passage, and we're going to look at two others just to see how he treats this so that we could kind of come away today with what do we need to know about our words? What do we need to know about the things that we say? And so if you'll join me in James chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says this. Uh, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what he says is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Now, I'm hoping that you're already feeling some tension here. First of all, you should already be worried about me because I'm up here teaching a passage about how not many people should teach. Second of all, you should be thinking about how he says, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. Because I dare say, none of us are. None of us are never at fault in what we say. And if we took a survey about how many times you wish you could have taken a word back in the last 48 hours, I think we would get some really interesting results. And if we took a survey about how many times you wish someone else took their words back in the last 48 hours, they would be equally interesting. And my wife is smiling at me as we speak. (laughs) In fact, we don't need to go 24 hours back to get some juicy stuff on this, right? This is a difficult thing. And he says this in verse 3, When we put bits in the mouth of a horse to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Now, we don't live in a society with lots of horse riders, horseback riders, so you know how that works. This, this piece goes in the horse's mouth, and it's attached to the reins. You pull right, the horse, the horse turns right. You pull left, the horse turns left, right? It's a pretty simple metaphor. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, let me tell you something about James real quick. James loves strong language. James and I would be good friends. We both love hyperbole. 
James likes to push things all the way to the edge to make his point. And there's actually, if you read the book of James on your own, be alert. There are things he says categorically that are actually only true generally. Okay? He does this over and over and over again. He says things like, rich people are horrible because they oppress everyone. Okay, so not, not every rich person oppresses everyone, right? But he makes these extreme cases. So here he's doing it again. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. And we can read that and we think, oh, James, that's too strong. That's too much. But what's great about this is that if you allow it to, if you allow yourself to sit with the tension of that statement, is that it can actually help you to see more clearly the truth of something that would be hard to see without the strong language. Now, I think if I came up here and said, hey, guys, tongues are tricky things. Words are, words are delicate. You need to be careful about them. And we'd hear an amen. And we'd all go out of here thinking, yeah, I should be careful about my words. And then we would go on with our day and probably think nothing else of it. But if I tell you that your tongue is going to burn in the fires of hell, then you're going to walk out of here with a little bit different uh, perspective on how to think about your words. And that's what James is doing. He's being really strong. He knows that tongues are not only evil. But he knows that it's also true that they are. Because, because what? Because what we say is an overflow of what's in our heart. And our hearts are divided. Our hearts are not pure. Our hearts are not fully redeemed yet. We are in process. And so if our hearts aren't yet fully redeemed then evil will come out of them. Evil will come out of them. And there's something about this. I bet, you know, we're talking a lot about action. And sometimes we contrast words with action, right? Oh, he's all talk, but no action. All bark, but no bite. But the reality is, in a world that was created by words, words are actions. And they can have a bigger impact sometimes than the things you do. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that. We just talked last week. If you say you're going to do something and then you don't do it, that's a big problem. And it's a, probably a problem that we're all very alert to in our own lives. You know, you say one thing, you do another. But there are moments in time where words have a greater impact on the world around you than anything you can do. Like when you tell the person you love in anger, I hate you. And you would do anything in the world to grab those words back and put them back in. That moment when you feel pushed too far and you lash out and call someone a name or... You, you take something they've shared in confidence and you use it against them. You take their vulnerability and you speak it out essentially as a curse to that person. 
And you would do anything you can later to grab those words and pull them back in. And we don't need to compare types of pain or compare types even of abuse. But sometimes, in some cases, you'd rather be hit than be told certain things. Words are actions. And I think it's very true that in some ways the whole course of our life can be set on fire with the wrong words. Marriages can end. Churches can be split apart. Whole nations can come to ruin when people are not careful with their words. And we see this all around us. All around us. So James may be acting or speaking very strongly here, but he's not wrong. It's hyperbolic, but it's not wrong. The idea is true. He goes on to say all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings. These very same human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now again, are you feeling the tension of this? James is saying, no one can tame their tongue, and it should not be that you have an untamed tongue. No one can be perfect, but you must be perfect. Now, again, I mentioned some people in church history have questioned whether this book should be in the Bible because they read something like that and they think, where's Jesus in that? This just sounds like a, a condemning message. Where's grace? Where's Jesus? Where's the cross in this? But you know what's kind of interesting? The way he's talking is exactly the way Jesus talked in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus would say things like, you say not to kill someone. I say, don't even say a mean word to someone. You say, love those who love you. I say, love those who hate you. You say, don't commit adultery. I say, even if you look at someone lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. James and Jesus are both doing the same thing. They're saying, look, this is the standard God has. And I'm not going to pretend this isn't God's standard. And I want you to feel the tension of the fact that you will never, ever, ever meet it. And then I'm going to rest there a little bit.
it would be so easy for us to read this and say, oh, but Jesus. Oh, but grace. Oh, but forgiveness. Oh, but the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus. And yes, we will run there. But we will run there faster and with more gratitude and more joy if we rest for a moment in the tension. No one can tame their tongue. No one can be perfect. No one can ever be everything God has called you, invited you, implored you, commanded you, blessed you to be on your own. This is why not many people should be teachers. Because, you know what? I'm going to teach you something wrong. It's going to happen. It has happened. The biggest problem is I don't know which things I taught you were wrong and which things I taught you were right because I wouldn't have taught it to you if I didn't think it were right. And not only that, when you get up in front of people and teach, what does that do to your ego, to your pride? The words come out. What is it doing to your heart, even if the words are right? You see, this thing, it's complicated. It's scary. It's difficult. And it's not any easier for you because you're not up here. Every difficulty in your family, in your relationships, every time you say something that might technically be true, but the heart of it's not true, every time you hurt someone intentionally or not with your words. I mean, I just, uh, not recently, I was making a joke about something and uh, someone said to me, I know you're joking, but it still hurts that you said it. You know, these things, these words, they have power. In James chapter 1, verse 19, my brothers and sisters, Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Oh. I think if I were to write this verse based on how my life actually goes, I would be slow to speak, quick to listen, and quick to become angry. And God says, how about we invert that? How about we turn that upside down? Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. By the way, if you've been in our church for a while, you know that we have taught and we believe and we have made an important uh, emphasis on the fact that actually, hey, all of our feelings are good, including anger. Again, James is being strong and he's being hyperbolic. But what he's talking about is the kind of anger that is not righteous anger. The kind of anger that, that comes from our sinful places, from the hearts that are still divided. Those don't re lead to the righteousness of God. He says, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. What is this moral filth and evil? That's strong language. Did he now jump topics to, to uh, infidelity and, and uh, murder? 
No, he's still talking about being slow to speak and quick to listen and slow to get angry. That's moral filth when we don't do that. Again, strong language. We don't like this language. We want James to kind of chill out a bit. Like, wow, man, for a guy who's telling you to be careful with your words, you're really strong with your words. But I think inspired by the Holy Spirit, James is saying these are exactly the words that you need to hear to take seriously this issue. But I love how he ends that. And this is where, you know, he doesn't use the name Jesus. He doesn't mention the gospel. He doesn't talk about the cross. But he says, accept the word planted in you, which can save you. And there's our escape hatch. Not the escape hatch that says, okay, we don't have to worry about this. It's the escape hatch that says, I have to worry about this, but the only way this is going to change is if something happens in here. If I humbly accept the word, the word that was planted in me. What is the word? Well, over and over in the Bible, the writers of Scripture use the word as a synonym for the gospel. It's, it's the message, it's the information, it's the ideas and the concepts and the reality behind them that Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. He was without sin. And yet he died on that cross for sinners, for people who could not tame their tongue, for people who could not sit still and listen instead of speaking, for people who could not... Uh, refrain from hurting the ones they love, speaking curses against the ones they hate, for the ones who couldn't follow the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus died for them. And who's them? Well, it's me and it's you. And if we can accept that word, that truth, that Jesus was perfect and he died for me because I'm not perfect, And not just that I'm not perfect. I'm way less than perfect. I'm not approaching perfect. But the more that my identity is changed from the inside by this humble receptance of the truth of the gospel, then the more I can actually live out these things that James is calling me to, that Jesus is calling me to, that the creator, God of the universe, is calling me to. Guys, I have a really hard time shutting my mouth. Really difficult for me. Paul, you're laughing. This is not (laughs) the people who know me just smiling and laughing every time. No, it's hard for me. It's difficult. I really, you know, I'm an extrovert. But beyond that, I have a hard time being obedient to this command of Scripture. And it troubles me. And I think the worst thing I can do is run to Jesus too quickly. And the best thing I can do is run to Jesus as quickly as I can. Do you understand? There is no one who can tame their tongue. In chapter 4, verse 11... It says this, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. 
Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment over it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Do not speak slander against one another. There's so much slander in our world today. So much slander in the public sphere today and private. So much of it done by professing believers in Christ who justify their slander because they say, but it's true. James says, when you speak against them, you speak against the law, you judge the law, but there's only one lawgiver and one judge. And this judge is the one who can either save you or destroy you. Then he goes on about boasting. Look at you. You say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. That sounds like a good uh, one-year plan. <laughs> That's kind of sounds like something you would encourage someone to do who's in business. Make a plan. Implement it. Follow through. Get it done. Make some money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You know you shouldn't boast. You know you shouldn't uh, imply that you are in control of your life, which is really what this is about. I'm in control of my life. And the Lord says, I don't think so. You've been given the wrong memo. The truth is, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, growing up, my grandfather, we would say, oh, we'll see you tomorrow. And he would say, the Lord willing. Really took this to heart. The Lord willing, the Lord willing. And that used to annoy me so much. I'm like, just make a plan, man. Just commit to something. And, you know, today, it's even worse. This whole, you know, FOMO thing. I think, uh, you know, this fear of missing out. Like, I don't want to commit to anything because something better might come. And I remember uh, being so frustrated uh, with some friends. There was a point in our life where none of our friends would commit to anything until the last minute. And it's, we just stopped inviting them to things. It's like, commit. But you see, the tension here is that, yeah, make commitments, but understand that the Lord is the one who knows the future. The Lord is the one in control. The Lord is the one who actually uh, knows what the future will bring. So make your commitments knowing that God is the one ultimately who decides. And that's what my grandfather was doing to his credit. We'll see you tomorrow, the Lord willing. That was his way of saying, yes, I really hope so, and I'll be there unless God says otherwise, unless God intervenes. You know, there's all these different things in James about the words that we say, the things that we uh, that comes out of our mouth. He's got this whole thing, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Don't, don't swear oaths by heaven or earth or anything else. Uh, he talks about um, 
the things that we, that we pray about in the book of James, how we pray, the kind of prayer of faith that we can have. Beth talked earlier about, you know, praying in faith and then knowing that when we pray, God's going to do something. Like, something's going to happen. Things aren't going to stay the same. A lot of things about the tongue. But what I hope we can go home with today is to take the warning seriously enough, but not so, not in such a way that they're debilitating. Take it seriously enough, but not so it cripples you. I, I believe that for me, like James says, I will, I will never conquer my tongue. But I better be getting better and better and better and better at it as time goes on. And the only way that's going to happen is if I acknowledge it when I do it, confess it to others in the Lord, re-invite Jesus and the gospel into my life to change me from the inside out. Because I have learned, I'm 42 years old, which some of you are like you're a kid and some of you are like you're ancient. 42 years. One thing that I've learned for certain is that I don't have it in me to do what James is saying. But I do know that the Holy Spirit who's in me does. I do know that the Jesus who died for me does. I do know that the God who created me does. And so when I think about, you know, where I end up, you know, with this concept is that it's an acknowledgement that it's impossible and it's an acknowledgement that with Jesus all things are possible. And those are not contradictions. They're both true. And they're both true for me and they're both true for you. And so when we do things like our identity statement, you know, we wrote that thing um, was it last year we wrote that? Every time we say it, for me, when we get to the part that says leans joyfully into transformation, it makes me uncomfortable because I know that I do not consistently lean joyfully into transformation. I don't like it that much a lot of the times. I don't. But then it reminds me that there is joy in it. And there's joy on the other side of it. And I don't have to be afraid of changing. I don't have to be angry at acknowledging my own sin and failures. I don't have to be afraid that someone's going to see me not perfect. Right? There's, there's joy on the other side of this. Not because I'll be perfect, but I think hopefully that for me, I'm, I'm being a little uh, transparent here, for me, a lot of the transformation is to just be able to take that stuff without, without feeling all those, you know, despair or, you know, inadequacy or whatever. And then yours may be different. Yours may be different. But what it does is every time we read that, it drives me back to the gospel. It drives me back to Jesus. And I think Jesus is all over the book of James. All over. If you read it, you'll see his name in there twice. But he's in every verse of this book. 
Because what James is saying over and over and over again is, hey guys, you can't do it on your own. He sets the bar way too high, even though it's exactly where it's supposed to be. So what I would love to do is stop talking. Normally I pray for you right now. But what I'm going to invite you to do is for you to take a moment to pray. I want you to ask the Lord, God, where is this difficult for me? What is the, what is the tension? What is the impossibility that you set before me today? And I want you to sit with that just for a little bit. 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. And then, Lord, what are you giving me in the Holy Spirit and in Jesus and the gospel in your own self that's going to help me overcome this and make one step forward? To, how can I lean joyfully into transformation one step forward today, this week, uh, in the near future? Is that something we can all do? All right, Lord, where, do you, where is the tension for me? What's the impossibility for me? Rest there a few seconds, 20 seconds, 15 seconds. And then, Lord, what are you giving me in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the gospel to overcome it? All right, let's do that.